Hello from Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge. What you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the surge-encircled bottom of the storm vessel. Uh, right. Well, today we've got the Port Report. Sarah Lynch, who is now a special counsel in the Competition and Regulation Group, returns to the pod with an update on what's been happening in the world of ports, including the New South Wales Ports case, which has survived an appeal from the ACCC. So this is a caution the ACCC has received in a few court decisions now, including back in Metcash and the TPG Vodafone decision about needing to make sure that they really focus on real-world evidence and not just economic theories. But first, Matt, what on earth is the surge-encircled bottom of the storm vessel? Well, this is an example of kenning, which is what the Viking poets use to replace an ordinary word with a complicated description. I thought that was lawyers. <laughs> yeah, too. So here the storm vessel is the sky and the surge-encircled bottom of the sky is the world. Right. Well, everything's a cryptic crossword to use in it. I do remember the sea being the whale road. What was that about? Uh, well, that was in Beowulf, um, being, of course, the, the classic motion capture animation from 2007 with Ray Winston as Beowulf. Well, of course. And Angelina Jolie as Grendel's mum. Yeah, that's the one. Um, other kennings for the sea uh, include the beer of fishing stations, the mountains of lobsters, and the mighty enclosure of the Hall of the Raven. Mm, just like this dung of the ancient eagle is a corpse herring in the promontory of the back. Oh, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Just as well. What's happening around the grounds? Well, C Chair Gina Cascott-Lieb has just set out the pretty big changes to merger law and process that the ACCC will be taking to the government, which she revealed in a speech to the National Press Club recently. My predecessor, Rod Sims, outlined proposed changes to Australian merger laws. After 12 months in this role, I have observed firsthand the challenges with our current settings and formed the view that changes are needed. The concerns that Rod identified in 2021 about the need for merger reform and the broad direction of the reform proposals I will now put forward remain the same. However, informed by stakeholder feedback and our recent experiences with a series of important formal merger authorisations, we have adjusted some of the elements, as I will shortly outline. So, Rod Sims proposed a new merger approval process, which would be mandatory and suspensory, so that all mergers over a certain threshold would have to be run past the ACCC and wouldn't be able to complete without their approval. But he also argued for some changes to the merger test itself, didn't he, which the ACCC had struggled to prove in court. That's right. And all the suggestions about process are basically the same, but it is now proposed that if the ACCC decides that a merger would lessen competition, then the parties can apply to have it reconsidered on public benefit grounds. That's interesting because the ACCC has said that the public benefit test that's available for authorisations is really the main way for the ACCC to take broader public interests into account like those progressive antitrust concerns. So that test would be in the mainstream of merger assessments in Australia for the first time. Yeah, it would. Then uh, on the competition test, the proposals would reverse the onus of proof. So the merger parties would have to show that there was no real chance that the merger would substantially lessen competition. And parties have been able to show that in the past when they've taken the ACCC to court, haven't they? Like the AGL case in 2003 or the Vodafone TPG case more recently, but now they'd have to do it every time. They would. And on the test itself, there are some new factors to take into account, like whether there'll be a loss of competitive rivalry or an increase in control of data or other assets, or whether any existing market power held by a party would be entrenched or extended by the merger. And like the merger factors we have already, 
those can already be taken into account, and they often are. They are. Former Chair Rod Sims had proposed that any merger that entrenched or materially increased substantial market power would be deemed to substantially lessen competition. End of story. And is that the proposal here? We'll have to wait for the actual language, I think. Gina Cascott-Lieber said that it's meant to be like the test in Europe, which is whether a merger would significantly impede effective competition, in particular by creating or strengthening a dominant position. So you might still have to show that this particular entrenching, materially increasing or materially extending a position of substantial market power had the effect of substantially lessening competition. Yeah, I think that's my reading of what we might end up calling the Emiopia possum test, but we'll have to see. Well, either way, the chair said this test is meant to look beyond the incremental change arising from the particular merger and also look at the overall enhancement of dominant positions, including through a series of small mergers that can add up to a lot, also called creeping acquisitions. Yeah, and sometimes creepy acquisitions. Mm. The changes do echo the Richmond Amendment that Senator Nick Xenophon proposed in the creeping acquisition wars of the late 2000s. And that said that a firm with substantial market power couldn't acquire anything that would result in any lessening of competition, no matter how insubstantial it might be. So the creepy acquisition wars ended with a very small change to the law, which now refers to competition in any market instead of in a substantial market, as we've talked about before. And at the time, uh, one journalist suggested that the change might be called the Gina Cascotlieb Amendment. So there is kind of a symmetry there. Hmm. And we haven't seen any amendments named after towns and suburbs for a while, have we? No, I mean, apart from Nick Xenophon's Richmond Amendment, there was also Barnaby Joyce's Birdsville Amendment, which looked at predatory pricing. And then they had a joint Blacktown Amendment designed to address price discrimination. Now our amendments have names like more competition, better prices. At least they're not acronyms. No, McBurp is not a great acronym, it's true. (laughs) Indeed. But this will add up to a pretty seismic change if it's all implemented. But that, of course, depends on what the government wants to do. That's right. And that is still pretty much up in the air. Here's what the chair said. We have provided um, a paper to Treasury um, so that we are commencing a process, but it will be for the government to take it forward. And I do not have any indication as to what the Treasurer's view is. And the team have an update on the merger proposals that we'll link to in the show notes. What else is going on? Well, the ACCC has just decided to oppose Qantas's acquisition of Alliance Airlines after almost a year of consideration and nine months after a statement of issues setting out its preliminary competition concerns. I remember a few years back, Qantas acquired almost 20% of Alliance without seeking clearance, and then the ACCC launched a quite lengthy enforcement investigation, but ultimately decided against taking any further action. That's right. And a month after that, Qantas went back for the rest of Alliance. This time, they did ask for informal clearance which was seen by some people as a test for the new chair, Gina Cascotlieb, and whether she'd be as pragmatic or even as business-friendly as some people thought she might. But that statement of issues had two red lights and an orange, or possibly an amber or a yellow. Yeah, we haven't really settled on a specific colour there. And look, we don't have the ACCC's public competition assessment yet, but their press release focused on the first red light, which was about competition in charter services for resource industry customers in Western Australia and Queensland. So Qantas might have got somewhere on the other lights, which were about regular passenger flights on a few specific routes, but the ACCC was still concerned about competition for those charter flights. Yeah, the ACCC chair said that flying workers in the resource industry to and from their work sites is an essential service for this important part of the Australian economy, so it's critical that competition in this market is protected. Well, you know where else flying workers are essential, Matt? Champions League. Oh, of course. Yes, well, as the Matildas defender Steph Catley found out after playing for Arsenal in a 2-2 comeback draw against Wolfsburg in Germany last week, 
uh, the team boarded a charter flight back to London and then the plane caught fire on the tarmac after a bird flew into the engine. Did they have to alight in a hurry? Uh, maybe we should say deplane. Well, this all sounds like the first draft of Yellow Jackets. <laughs> well, they eventually got home safely, but I'm very glad that Gina is making sure that competition is maintained in the market for charter services in Australia so that the World Cup teams can whiz around the country under the best possible conditions in July and August. That's right. The chair did say that Alliance is a customer favourite and a particularly vigorous competitor, and it's actually one of Australia's most significant airlines, even though it doesn't fly the biggest scheduled passenger routes. And this is the first time the ACCC has outright opposed a merger under the informal clearance process since the new chair came in. Though, of course, it did deny authorisation to the Telstra TPG Spectrum sharing arrangement last December, didn't it? Yeah, and a few mergers in that period have been cleared on the basis of undertakings or withdrawn after concerns from the ACCC or from overseas regulators. And there are still a couple of red light mergers out there at the moment. There's Cochlear's acquisition of Oticon, and then there's that pesky supermarket at Carabar. Ah, Carabar. That's a classic creeping acquisition situation that might really be affected by the ACCC's new merger proposals. It might. So in the past, the ACCC has gone to a lot of effort to define these narrow geographic markets where one supermarket more or less could really make a difference. In the future, it could be simpler for them just to show that existing market power is being extended or entrenched. Well, let's not count our Woolies roast chickens just yet. Uh, the bachelor's handbag. Macquarie Dictionary's word of the year, that was. <laughs> yeah, you know, in Old Norse, it'd be called the glittering cauldron of the land of the hawk of the young thorn tree of treasure. Oh, Matt, no. No, it wouldn't. No, you, you probably wouldn't. <laughs> Finally, though, we've previously spoken to Peter Waters about artificial intelligence and the Stanford AI Index, which is published every year. Oh, I read that as the Stanford Owl Index, which rates everyone called Owl from, I guess, Al Gore to Al Capone. Here's a mistake to make. Let's not forget Weird Al Yankovic. Or Anud Al-Azmari, the first woman from Saudi Arabia to be an international football referee. Or Mad Magazine's Al Jaffe, who sadly just died at the age of 102. Oh, well, my fave is Ali bin Al-Hussein, the Prince of Jordan who successfully campaigned in FIFA to lift the ban on women playing football while wearing a hijab. Well, he's an Al and an Ali. It's hard to beat that. Stanford has also published its AI index for 2023, and Peter has an ongoing series of updates on what's got to be the biggest year for AI since the time that computer won Jeopardy. Well, the year has been dominated by generative AI tools. First, text-to-image art generators like DALI and Stable Diffusion, and then large language model chatbots like ChatGPT and apparently Claude. What's coming next and how can we use it in the podcast? Well, promising new developments include nuclear fusion using AI to confine and control hydrogen plasma, which is hotter than the core of the sun, so not risky at all. Mm. The index also talks about self-generating AI, which involves AI designing better and better microchips to increase its own intelligence and eventually bring about the apocalypse. Well, the report also warns that AI models are, and I quote, prone to hallucination routinely biased and can be tricked into serving nefarious aims. Sounds like they've achieved the sentience of a beat poet. Or a Viking poet. You're absolutely right. <laughs> and maybe that's why the report found a very wide range of views about the benefits and drawbacks of AI, with only 35% of Americans agreeing that it would probably do more good than harm, and only 26% feeling that self-driving cars were a good idea. Well, we'll link to Peter's first two articles in the show notes and update you when there's a new instalment. But Matt, you recently sat down with special counsel Sarah Lynch for the long-awaited Port Report, which I think is why we're all Norse poets today. That's right. Uh, Sarah had a lot to say about the recent New South Wales Ports case and all the other developments affecting these many rafted bench wolves of the horses of oars and high striders of planks. Let's take a listen. 
Back in season one, we spoke to Sarah Lynch, who was then a senior lawyer, about the New South Wales Port's decision where the federal court had just dismissed an action by the ACCC. Since then, the ACCC has appealed the decision and has, if anything, intensified its focus on the port sector, and Sarah has become a special counsel. So it's a great time to have her back and bring us up to date. Sarah, welcome back to The Competitive Edge. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. I wonder if you can give us a quick recap of the original New South Wales Ports decision, where you and the team acted for New South Wales Ports and had a pretty comprehensive win. So you might remember the decision involved the New South Wales government's privatisation of the ports at Botany and Kembla to New South Wales Ports in 2013, and then again the privatisation of the Port of Newcastle to another buyer in 2014. So Botany is the main container port in New South Wales, and it's got a specialised container terminal, um, whereas Ports Kembla and Port of Newcastle are focused on non-containerised cargo. So in New South Wales, it's always been state policy that Botany would be the sole container port until it reached capacity for reasons of efficiency to avoid the duplication of very expensive um, transport and logistic infrastructure. Since 2012, um, it has also been state policy that Port Kembla would be developed as the second container port once Botany reached capacity. And then following Kembla reaching capacity, Port of Newcastle would be developed as a container port. So with that background, as part of the privatisation in 2013, the New South Wales government had put in place an arrangement where New South Wales ports, as the successful bidder for Botany and Kembla, could be compensated by the government if, contrary to the long-standing state policy, Newcastle developed a container terminal while either Botany or Kembla still had capacity. So this compensation will only be payable if certain conditions are met, including, importantly, that New South Wales ports has to use reasonable endeavours to minimise any loss of revenue that may be the subject of a compensation claim. Right, so I can't just sit back and uh, not bid for those volumes and take the money. Exactly right. The whole premise of the compensation regime was that competition would be introduced. So that's when they would kick in and have effects. So you need to make sure that there was this um, obligation on New South Wales ports to compete and to make sure that they continue to invest in the infrastructure. It's such a vital asset. Makes sense. So then in 2014, uh, when the government decided to privatise Port of Newcastle, these compensation arrangements were disclosed to bidders and a back-to-back arrangement was put in place where Port of Newcastle would reimburse the state if ever compensation had to be paid to New South Wales ports. So the ACCC started to investigate this conduct based on complaints by Port of Newcastle and ultimately took action and said that the arrangements had the purpose, effect or likely effect of lessening competition in container terminal services in New South Wales by preventing uh, a container terminal being introduced at the Port of Newcastle. Justice Jago took a different view in her judgment in 2020 and said that firstly, the purpose wasn't to prevent a new container terminal being developed at the Port of Newcastle. Instead, the state's purpose was for it to get full value for the sale of Botany and Kembla. And for New South Wales ports, their purpose was just to ensure that they retained what they paid for. She also said that the arrangements wouldn't substantially lessen competition for a few reasons. Firstly, there was no real chance or possibility that a container terminal would be built at Newcastle anyway, given that state government policy favours Port Botany being developed to capacity first. And then also she said there was no economic viability of a container terminal at the Port of Newcastle. The population centre of Sydney is in the southwest. All of your infrastructure that needs to be built around a container port has been built around that southwest population centre. So if you were to develop a container port at the Port of Newcastle, Prior to Botany reaching capacity, you would need to duplicate all of this infrastructure. There are massive upgrades needed to the railway line between Newcastle and Sydney, and also you'd be putting a lot more trucks on the roads. So all factors like that 
meant that it was very difficult to see how it would be viable for a container port to develop at the port of Newcastle when you still had significant capacity at Port Botany. And then Port Kembler is your second container port, being able to benefit more from that infrastructure that's been built around the same area and not having to cross through the city of Sydney. And then finally, she said that even if there was an anti-competitive purpose or effect from the arrangements, Crown immunity applied to the New South Wales government in the arrangements because it was not carrying on a business and that New South Wales ports had the benefit of derivative Crown immunity, meaning that the arrangements couldn't be um, taken out of the contract because that would impact on a legal right of the state. So the appeal was heard in February last year, I think, and we just got the full federal court's judgment. Uh, What were the arguments that the ACCC made and what did the court decide? So the ACCC appealed on all grounds, but they primarily focused their arguments in the appeal on the um, derivative crown immunity and purpose findings from Justice Jago. But they did maintain their position in the appeal that the arrangements were just inherently anti-competitive. We had the appeal handed down last week and there was a unanimous dismissal of all the ACCC's grounds of appeal. There were split judgments though. So we had Chief Justice Alsop and Justice Yates in the majority judgment. On purpose, they said that the inquiry that had to be undertaken was the end sought to be accomplished by the inclusion of the compensation provisions. They held that the purpose was not to prevent or hinder competition. Instead, competition between the parties was the whole assumption of the operation of the provisions. And they sort of went further and said the provisions could kind of be seen as a price adjustment or insurance clause should the underlying commercial assumption of the transaction be radically varied. They said in a situation that where there was a hypothesized future change of government policy to allow Port of Newcastle to develop a container terminal while Port Bosnia still had capacity, then you would have a situation where New South Wales ports had paid too much for what it had acquired and Port of Newcastle had paid too little. So you needed to have an adjustment of payment. And when you think about the purchase prices that were paid, that makes sense when you had New South Wales ports paying $5.1 billion for the assets and Port of Newcastle $1.9 billion. Uh, They also cautioned against conflating purpose with effect. They said that the purposes of the state in New South Wales found by Jago were founded in the context of the real world and they should not be decontextualized from the circumstances in which they arose and then given characterization by economic theory or competition principles. So this is a caution the ACCC has received in a few court decisions now, including back in Metcash and the TPG Vodafone decision about needing to make sure that they really focus on real world evidence and not just economic theories. Then on likely effects, Alsop and Yates found that there was no legal error in the findings, that there was no real chance of a container terminal being developed at Newcastle while Botany had capacity. They said, firstly, there was no evidence that government policy would change and two, no evidence of a viable business case. And then on Crown immunity, they uh, agreed with Justice Jago that the New South Wales government and the privatisation was not carrying on a business. They also agreed with Justice Jago's findings on derivative Crown immunity. The New South Wales ports would get the benefit of this. They said that to apply Section 45 to the compensation provisions would have been a divestiture of a legal right conferred on the Treasurer to affect the transaction as he chose to obtain the maximum value. And they again distinguished the High Court's decision in Baxter, where they said there was no divestiture of a relevant legal right because it was just a general contracting regime there. So that's the difference? Yes. but So as I mentioned before, it was a split judgment. So Justice Beach similarly found that there was crown immunity and no anti-competitive purpose or likely effect. However, he dissented on derivative crown immunity, saying that New South Wales ports did not have the benefit of this. He said this was on the basis that because New South Wales ports 
never had the ability to enter into an anti-competitive contract. It could not be said that this was a right the government lost. So this creates a bit of a chicken and egg problem. You can't see following that analysis how derivative crown immunity might ever arise. So certainly an interesting um, area for future judgments. (laughs) Well, that's a a great victory for you and for the client, but it wasn't perhaps as much of a loss for the ACCC as it might have been, um, thanks to some development in the New South Wales Parliament. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So last year, the private members bill was introduced to the New South Wales Parliament to abolish the Newcastle payments And this was from an independent member for Lake Macquarie, which is quite close to the port. It was ultimately passed in November 2022, and it's called the Port of Newcastle Extinguishment of Liability Act. And under that legislation, the Port of Newcastle owners can apply for an independent valuer to determine the difference between what they paid for the port and what they would have paid if those obligations to make the reimbursement payments didn't exist. If Port of Newcastle ultimately pays this amount, then the reimbursement provisions will be removed. So following the appeal decision, Port of Newcastle has kicked off this process um, and IPART has been appointed to determine the value. Importantly for New South Wales ports, this doesn't touch the compensation provisions at all. So they will still get compensation if Port of Newcastle does start moving containers, but only if they use reasonable endeavours to compete for that volume. So maybe we can call that um, a win-win. And in the meantime, though, there's been some criticism of the privatisation process from other directions. Yeah, so the Productivity Commission in January this year released a report into Australia's maritime logistics system. They sort of had the same rhetoric in that espoused by the ACCC that privatisation processes shouldn't be used to seek maximum sale price for assets without future regard to the need for competition or regulation. So in their view, the privatisation of Ports Botany and Port Kembla has entrenched port operators' market power over shipping lines and potentially stevedores in Sydney because Ports Botany and Kembla were privatised together, so they have the same owners, and also because of the compensation provisions. However, importantly, they did say that there was no evidence that their port operators had misused that power in any way. And in their view, the existing regulatory settings appeared to be adequate, which includes things like price monitoring and the ability for the regulator to step in. Uh, Future privatisations have also been a very hot topic in the New South Wales election campaign, uh, including recently a debate about whether the Perite government might look to privatise assets like Sydney Water, and they've been getting a lot of criticism from the potential future Labor government about that. And by the time this episode comes out, we may well have a new government, so we'll, (laughs) we'll see. So this is certainly a live issue. Um, at the same time, the ACCC has been looking further south to some of the ports in Victoria. What's been going on down there? Yeah, so there was a really interesting ACCC merger review decision last year, which put a spotlight on acquisitions of critical infrastructure assets and also issues of common ownership across those assets. So in the second half of last year, a consortium of superannuation and infrastructure funds, which is led by Spirit Super and Palisade Investment Partners, abandoned their proposed acquisition of the Port of Geelong after concerns were raised by the ACCC in a statement of issues. So the Port of Geelong and Port of Portland were both privatised in 1996, the first ports to be privatised in Australia. Both have changed hands a few times. Palisade Investors, one of the consortium partners, currently owns 100% of the Port of Portland. And the ACCC was concerned that Palisade would also control 49% of the Port of Geelong if the acquisition went ahead. And in their view, that might have led to a substantial lessening of competition for the supply of port services for bulk cargo in Victoria because common ownership could lessen the incentives for competition between the ports. In the face of these concerns, the consortium decided to not go ahead with the purchase of the port and withdrew their application. 
Importantly, for future acquisitions, the ACCC noted that superannuation and investment funds have interest in a lot of Australia's critical infrastructure assets and that they were focused on the common funds management and ownership of competing firms, even when they may only hold minority interests. I think they also pointed to a recent parliamentary inquiry into the issue of joint ownership as well. What did that inquiry say? Yeah, so that was the Economic Standing Committee inquiry into the implications of common ownership and capital concentration in Australia which was reported in March 2022. Sounds pretty relevant. (laughs) So this debate about common ownership and minority interests has been raging overseas for years, uh, including in Australia. So the committee made a number of recommendations following that inquiry. These included that portfolio managers with assets above a particular threshold were to report their shareholdings regularly. Secondly, that there might need to be controls on the role of proxy advisors in shaping the voting decisions of investment funds. And third, they recommended an explicit legislative requirement for the ACCC to actively monitor the extent of common ownership and to take common ownership implications into account when assessing merger applications. Interestingly, in submissions and oral, um, the oral hearing, the ACCC said that that was something they didn't need. Uh, is something that they take into account regularly right. anyway. They didn't need any change in the law. And uh, what other areas are the ACCC involved in when it comes to ports and infrastructure? Yeah, so it's been a key focus of the ACCC. It was one of their compliance and enforcement priorities that they've carried over from last year, particularly looking at competition issues in global and domestic supply chains. Gina Cascotlib last year had mentioned that the ACCC was doing a broader investigation into issues across container supply chain, including the accumulation of empty containers in Australian ports as a potential big issue. The ACCC, in relation to Steve Adoring, also has an active role in monitoring and has been reporting on the industry since 1999 and releases a detailed annual report every year on how competition in that sector is going. Finally, the ACCC has also in the last year commented on the possible repeal of exemptions from competition laws from shipping lines in Part 10 of the Competition and Consumer Act. And this is also mentioned in the Productivity Commission's Maritime Logistics Report we spoke about earlier. So this is a debate that's been occurring in many overseas countries as well. The ACCC has noted that shipping lines have increased their bargaining power over the last decade or so through consolidation and organising into large global alliances. There's also been increased vertical integration between shipping lines and landside services, such as the stevedores. In a speech last year, Gina Cascotlib said that Part 10 of the Competition Consumer Act is a legal anachronism. It allows shipping lines to make agreements on rates, vessel sharing and scheduling, which might otherwise breach our competition laws. No other industry benefits from such a broad legislated exemption from Australia's competition laws. So a space to watch. And quite a few recent inquiries and not so recent inquiries have recommended repealing Part 10, but it's still in there. Yeah. So we're now on Gadigal land here at Barangaroo in Sydney. Uh, and until quite recently, this was a busy container port. Speaking of stevedores, there was a lot going on downstairs back in the day. And it was a, a cargo port for about 100 years even before that. That's right. And I understand it was called the Hungry Mile for all the dock workers who lined up in the 1930s looking for a job. Yeah, there was a famous poem that included, they tramped there in their legions in the mornings dark and cold to beg the right to slave for bread from Sydney's lords of gold. <laughs> Not much has changed then. <laughs> it does feel like that. Do you have a favourite port, Sarah, anywhere in the world? Uh, well, apart from Ports Botany and Kembla, of course, um, I was lucky to just spend my honeymoon in Italy last year, so I might say the Port of Positano. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. I think the podcast might need to take a cruise over in that direction pretty soon. In the meantime, thank you very much, Special Counsel Sarah Lynch. Thanks, Matt. What a great interview. We should say that when we spoke to Sarah, the ACCC was still within time to seek special leave to appeal to the High Court. 
that time is now passed and it looks like the ACCC has let that one go through to the keeper. That's right. In its press release after the decision, the ACCC acknowledged that the changes that have been made by the New South Wales government should facilitate competition for container port services. So it looks like everyone's kicked a goal. Now, I really don't want to know what the Viking word for crystal ball is. I don't have crystal balls as such, but you could go and chat with the severed head of the god Mimir. Mm, is that another kenning? No, it's an actual head. Ugh. And in the interview, we foreshadowed that there might be a change of government. And that is what happened. The centre-left Labour Party won the most seats, though it didn't quite get to a majority. And it's formed government with the support of some independents, uh, including Greg Piper, who was behind the recent New South Wales ports legislation. Now, Labor campaigned strongly against further privatisation of assets like Sydney Water. What have they done on those issues since they took office? They've just released an infrastructure red book, which sets out the new government's priorities. Mm -hmm. It says that public ownership of the electricity networks and the Sydney train operator will be enshrined in legislation, while government control over the key water suppliers will actually be written to the state constitution. They'll also give up on asset recycling and keep ownership of the Sydney Harbour crossings. So the bridge, the tunnel and the new tunnel they're building underneath my house at the moment. So what's the prediction here, that they'll do what they say they'll do? Well, the Commonwealth Government has said that they'll now keep the NBN in public hands. Uh, Victoria says they'll move from privatised coal to publicly owned clean energy. And with Labor governments looking pretty comfortable across the mainland, it may be a while before we see any more privatisations of key infrastructure. Mm, so have you actually read the Red Book? I haven't read the Red Book. It's, a, it's an unread book for me. But oh. the infrastructure team has an excellent summary, which we'll link to in the show notes. Very good. Well, you heard it here first. Unless you've been consulting any severed Viking heads, that is. Uh, any more predictions, Matt? Uh, well, in the world of ticketing kerfuffles that already stars Taylor Swift, FIFA has got in on the act with some very unhappy customers who bought tickets to the Women's World Cup. Maybe you've got a prediction for us, Moya. Well, maybe I do. Fans who queued up online for the release of Category 1 tickets have found that their seats are up in the nosebleeds at the back of the stadium. Yeah, I see that fans have claimed that the ticketing process was very deceptive. People feel they've been duped and that it's false advertising. Interestingly, at the 2019 Women's World Cup, FIFA also had a ticketing kerfuffle when groups that bought tickets together found they were seated separately, including young kids. So FIFA had to reallocate the seats there. So I'm predicting we haven't heard the last of this yet. Well, we'll bring you pitch side updates on that one. They may turn out to be those blue section updates. Well, you can find relevant links in the show notes or email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including our own Annabelle Jornonetis, who's been at the American Bar Association Spring Meeting, mm -hmm. and Department of Justice economist Brian Clark. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was the Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin.